Uh, today, I, I want to tell us a story. Um, it's an old story. Uh, matter of fact, it, it's so old, it's ancient. Uh, but it has proven over the last 3,000 years to have a uh, timeless uh, relevance to it. Uh, and, and sometimes when we hear like 3,000 years, um, it just goes in one ear, goes out the other. But I just want you to think about this. This is, this is a story that has been told and retold for 3,000 years. This is a story that finds its origin all the way back in the Iron Age. Uh, it's a story more than likely you've heard before. You, you started hearing this story most likely uh, back in childhood. However, even though you've heard this story since you were a child and you've heard this story either told and retold dozens of times or you've heard the theme of this story referenced maybe even hundreds of times. This is a story, though 3,000 years old, Old, as old as it is, as ancient as it is, it is a story that continues to call us to revisit it time and time and time again in order to rethink its meaning and to rethink its relevance in my life and your life. So despite how many times you've heard the story that we're going to talk about today or how well you think you know it, this is a story that invites you and invites me to revisit in order to rethink what does this story mean? What does this story mean for me? What does this story mean for this season of life that I'm in? What does this story mean for the circumstances that I'm currently going through? Uh, this is a story uh, that maintains its freshness because it has a capacity to evolve and grow and expand and deepen over time, just as we do as individuals, uh, as moms and dads, as you know, husbands and wives, as men and women, you know, as teenagers. Uh, there is this understanding that in life we continue to evolve, we continue to grow, we continue to expand, we continue to deepen. We're not the same people we were 10 years ago. We're not the same people we were five years ago. And maybe we're not even the same people we were one year ago. So as we continue to change, this story evolves, it grows, expands, it deepens along with us. And that means that every time we come back and revisit this story and we look at it through more mature eyes, and through more experienced thinking, all of a sudden we begin to understand that this story, it stays fresh. And we understand that its meaning doesn't change over the years, but the meaning does mature over the years and the meaning does deepen over the years and it expands over the years. And it does so uh, in proportion to your experience and to my maturity and to your maturity and to your insight and to all the experiences that you bring to the table when you revisit this story, the story kind of accommodates us. The story accommodates our experience, our maturity, uh, our season of life. And, and that's what's so great about this story. So it deepens as we do. It matures as we do, it expands as we expand, and because of it, it's a story that just doesn't grow older, at least it shouldn't, and it's the story of David and Goliath. I told you, you've heard this story since you were, were you know, children, and you've heard this reference time and time and time again, because not only is this now a biblical story, uh, but it's kind of a metaphor out there in life, you know, as a real David and Goliath football game, a real David and Goliath, you know, wrestling match. You know, it's just a phrase that we use to describe, you know, again, all odds 
type of circumstances. So we've been talking this summer about the life of David and we're in week three of this series and we're talking about how the story of David's life can help me and help you write a better story with our own life. And this particular episode, this particular story in David's life, now keep in mind, it's a story to us, but this, this was an event in David's life. This, this was an experience. This would become a memory that he would never forget. But this particular episode, this particular story in David's life, it's so familiar to us. Uh, it really puts us at a disadvantage. Uh, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because we think that because we've heard this story that we know this story. We've heard this story many times, so that means we must know this story really, really well. So what happens to a lot of adults, uh, at least from my perspective, what happens to a lot of us church adults is that over time, we leave this story behind. And, and over the years, we, we begin to discount and discard this story because it's almost like we think of this story as being just for children rather than someone our age. It's about little David, shepherd boy anointed to be king, and a giant. And, and that by itself automatically feels not very real sometimes. That feels a little bit removed from reality. And, and it feels like maybe it's not that relevant to us anymore because it's, it's the story of a little teenage boy fighting this big seasoned giant. But as I said, this is a story that matures as we mature. And it has the capacity to hit us different in every season of our life. So even though we know this story, and even though you know how this story ends, uh, this story has the capacity to speak to you in a brand new, fresh relevance that maybe it never has before. Because it's a story of faith overcoming fear. And who among us hasn't had to struggle against fear? So it's the story of how faith overcomes fear. It's the story of how confidence overcomes complacency. And every single one of us will be tempted to be complacent at some point in our adult lives, at some point along our faith journey, we will be tempted to be complacent. And this is a story about how confidence in God overcomes complacency. It's a story about how humility overcomes arrogance. And some of us, we're constantly struggling against arrogance. We're constantly struggling against pride. So this is a story that speaks to us because it shows us how humility can overcome arrogance and how resistance resilience can overcome fragility, that we don't have to be shaken. We don't have to be destroyed. We don't have to be dominated. We, we don't have to be controlled by circumstances or by opposition or by the battles that we face or the struggles that we fight. This is a story about how we can be resilient even in the face of difficulty and adversity. And every single one of us living in the culture that we live in, facing some of the things that we're beginning to face, it's real easy to be shaken. It's real easy to be fearful. It's real easy to just get complacent and pessimistic and and to get critical and bitter and just to withdraw and retreat away from everything. But this is a story that says, hey, there's a better way. It's better to be resilient than so fragile that life breaks you and that life sends you into constant retreat. So this is a story that can broaden our perspective and it can grow our faith and it can strengthen our hope. It can fuel our vision for the future and it can refocus our vision for the future. And, and like I said, you know it, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about it anyway. And I hope with fresh eyes and fresh ears, you hear this story in a brand new way. This is how 1 Samuel 17 begins to record. It says, now the Philistines, 
uh, gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. Saul, uh, who is the first king of Israel, and, and we've talked about him for the past couple of weeks, uh, Saul is already in the midst of trouble. Uh, his administration is failing. God's in the process of taking the kingdom away from Saul. He's gonna give it to David. This is gonna play out, as we talked about a little bit last week, this is gonna take place over a period of years. There's this in-between, uh, this blank space in between God calling David, anointing David to be king, but there's gonna be a lot of years in between the time that he was anointed by Samuel the prophet and the time that he's actually standing in the midst of the destiny that God has awaiting for him. And so the way he handles the in-between makes a big difference in the life of David and the way that we handle the in-between, where we currently are and where God's trying to get us. The space in between those two points, from where we are at the moment and where God's trying to take us, how we handle the circumstances of our life in between, the seasons of our life in between, the adversity of our life in the in-between time, that's gonna make all the difference in the world in your life, it's gonna make all the difference in the world in my life, and it's gonna make all the difference in the world in the life of David. So Saul, this first king of Israel, and the Israelites, they assembled and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. It says the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites on the other with the valley between them. So, you know, you gotta just see the scene and the scene is war. Um, you know, I love to imagine this scene, you know, with the older men, the older men, they know what's about to happen. They've, they've lived through things like this, you know, similar to this, you know, time and time again, some of them, you know, are seasoned veterans of, of hand-to-hand combat. So a lot of the older guys, they got hardened looks on their face. You know, if you had a conversation with them, they probably got strong drink on their breath because they're trying to get all the courage that they can muster and order to fight the battle that's right there in front of them. Uh, all the while, the nervousness uh, of the young people around them because, you know, they're fresh. This is their first skirmish. This is their first battle. This is their first war. You know, the, the young men are nervous because they're not sure, you know, am I going to make it back to my children? Am I going to make it back to my wife? Am I going to make it back to my parents? Am I going to make it back to my village? You know, am I going to get to go back to the life that I had before I was a part of this army and I was getting ready to fight this war? So you got the older men, you know, they know what's about to happen and they're trying to be resolute as much as they can. You got the younger guys who, you know, everybody's scared, but, but the nervousness of the younger guys is a little bit more pronounced because they feel like they got a big life in front of them and they want to go back home uh, and they hope they get to go back home, but they're not sure they will. So this is ancient warfare. You know, you've got one army staring down, you know, in the face of the other army. And, you know, in modern warfare, in modern warfare, uh, you kill from a distance. You know, you can kill from a drone, you can kill with a missile, you know, you, you drop a few bombs. You know, in modern warfare, we kill from a distance. But in ancient warfare, in the Iron Age, uh, you almost always killed up close. Uh, you almost always killed your opponent while looking them in the eye. I mean, it was brutal and it was bloody and it was horrible and, and it was all the things that we could imagine and so much more because for, for those of us who've never been in that type of situation, we've never fought in a war, we, we've never been in a battle like that. It's just almost you know, virtually impossible for us to imagine what it was like for these older men and these younger men in this particular situation. So, 
If you were going to fight in this kind of battle in, in ancient warfare, especially in the Iron Age, uh, chances were um, that you weren't going to survive. Uh, chances were that you were probably going to get killed in battle. If you weren't killed outright, uh, you would probably get wounded. And if you got wounded, there was a good chance that you were going to catch some type of infection. And if you caught some type of infection in a world that had not yet discovered antibiotics, uh, in that type of world, you were probably going to die a worse type of death because it was going to be slow and it was going to be painful and you were going to die of some secondhand infection uh, from a wound that normally wouldn't kill you. So everybody was fearful that, that this could be the last day of their life and everybody was absolutely dreading what was about to happen because they were quite certain that it wasn't going to work out good for them. So the whole air in the valley of Elah is thick with emotion. There's a lot of dread. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of intimidation. There, there's just a lot of emotion. And to make matters worse, they're fighting against the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are one of the most advanced civilizations uh, at this particular time. Matter of fact, in many ways, they helped pioneer and usher in the Iron Age. And here's just a side note, just as, just as a little bit of parentheses. I didn't intend to include it, but I, I think it's always important to know that when we say that we trust the scriptures, uh, that means that we trust the legitimacy of what the scriptures record, that we believe that the scriptures are trustworthy. For years and years and years, there, there was a, a large segment of academia that said that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, were wrong about the Philistines because the Old Testament would talk about how the Philistines were seafaring people and how they came over uh, towards uh, from the island of Crete, from Europe. And for years and years, archaeologists and historians would say there's absolutely no evidence there's no evidence whatsoever that that's the case, and it's probably not the case. But about three or four years ago, genetic tests were done, and it was discovered that the Philistines are, lo and behold, from the island of Crete. Uh, they are, you know, people who originated in Europe. And, and so the scripture, when it gives us these little details that sometimes, you know, we just don't have the technology to verify the facts in question, but, but when you read the scripture, it's just good to know that you, be, you can be confident about what you're reading, uh, that the history is legitimate, that this is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. So these are the Philistines and they're advanced and they're good at war and they're good at making weaponry. And this is who the Israelites are fighting against. So it doesn't bode well for the Israelites. And not only that, not only are they facing the Philistines, but the Philistines have a secret weapon. Uh, the writer goes on to say, that a champion, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp and his height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on and his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer, went ahead of him. So here's Goliath. He's nine and a half feet tall, nine and a half, nine, nine feet, six inches tall. Now there, there is a little bit of a, a little bit of a debate among Bible scholars and among, among textual experts. There, there's some older manuscripts that say six, nine, uh, most of the old manuscripts, the oldest of manuscripts say nine, six. Uh, so some folks say, well, he's not nine foot six, you know, he's six foot nine. Okay, fine. He may be six foot nine, he, be, he may be 9 point, you know, 9.6, uh, but it doesn't really matter because the point is he's taller than the Israelites uh, because the average Israelite man was about five feet tall. 
And, and so it doesn't matter whether he's 6'9 or 9'6, which I tend to lean towards 9'6. And, and I also, you know, tend to maybe think that Malcolm Gladwell was correct when he wrote his book on David and Goliath, that, that perhaps Goliath had some type of, of brain tumor that had stimulated his pituitary and that was responsible for the, this, this vast amount of height, which was just basically unknown in the ancient world, especially at that particular time. So here's Goliath. He's nine foot six. He weighs 400 plus pounds. He's wearing 200 pounds or more of armor, and he has a 15 pound javelin. Now in ancient conventional warfare, Goliath is a killing machine. I mean, he's just a killing machine. Uh, that's all you can say about it. He's confident. He's a champion. Uh, he's intimidating. He's non-six, 400 plus pounds, and he's got 200 pounds plus of armor that, that he's adorning. Uh, so yeah, he's intimidating and, and he's relentless. I mean, this guy is not about to back down from anybody and why would he? It says, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Why are you doing that? Y'all know it's a waste of time. You know it's a waste of time. I, am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? So again, the writer, the historian is doing something really interesting in the story. He's telling the story of David, but he's also giving us the story of David against the backdrop of Saul. So there's always this contrast between, you know, God's man, David and Saul. Here's a man after God's own heart, David, and Saul, Saul who's a man kind of after his own heart. Saul who kind of got more interested in his own kingdom than he was God's kingdom. And, and he says, are y'all not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So he's, he's challenging them to what was known at that particular time as representational warfare. You, you get a representative, I'm a representative, we'll fight, imano imano, man to man, whoever wins takes all. And so that's what Goliath was attempting to do because it was actually, it made more sense for Goliath uh, to fight that way. I mean, if you're out there fighting, you know, with, you know, thousands of other people, hundreds of other people, I mean, somebody could slip up behind you and could wound you if you're somebody like Goliath. Uh, you are a little bit more vulnerable in, in a traditional setting of war. But if you went one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, how could you lose if you were Goliath? So he's trying to stack the cards in his favor. And he says, you find somebody and, and you bring them out here and I'll fight them and they'll fight me and winner takes all. And it says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, there it is again, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, this is kind of like the war before the war. This is like psychological warfare. This is, this is like propaganda. Uh, this, this is Goliath going out there, you know, he's strutting, he's letting everybody see how big and how massive and how strong he is. And, and he's challenging somebody to come out and fight him. And, and he knows how intimidating this is. This is all psychological warfare because he's getting into their minds. And he's influencing their thinking so much so that Saul and all the other guys, they're dismayed and they're terrified. I mean, think about that. They're there to fight a war. They're there to have a battle and they're dismayed and terrified. Now, what else is going on in this text is that if Israel had one man 
who was most qualified to go head to head against Goliath, that would have been Saul. Because you'll remember back week one, the reason that Saul was ever chosen to be king in the first place, it's because the people looked at him and because he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else because he was tall, dark, and handsome, they said, let's make Saul our king. So who's the tallest guy in the camp of the Israelites? It's Saul. Who is most qualified? Who's best positioned? Who on paper looks best going against Goliath? It's Saul. Who knows that? Saul knows that. Who else knows that? Everybody else in Saul's army. But when you're in Saul's army and Saul's the king, you very well can't nominate the king to go out and fight the battle. So you're in a little bit of a pinch. So there's Goliath and all the guys, you know, standing at a whopping four, eight, four, nine, five feet tall. They're looking at Saul because he's so tall and they're thinking, is he going to volunteer? Is he going to volunteer? And Saul's thinking, I ain't volunteering. I'm king. Uh, somebody's got to lead. Somebody's got to wear the crown. Better me keep my head than you lose yours. So I, I'm going to keep mine for the crown and we'll figure things out. So terrified dismayed. Now, everybody can relate to that. We've all got moments, seasons, circumstances, things that make us dismayed, things that kind of just upset our equilibrium inside, you know, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, you know, dismayed and terrified, just struck with fear, struck with fear that, that it's almost like paralysis sets in. It's like you're so afraid of what could happen, what might happen. You're so afraid of failing. You're, you're, you're so afraid that you just, you can't do anything. You, you know what you should do, but you can't. You know what the moment calls for, but you can't because you're, you're just paralyzed with fear. And that's where Saul and Israel's at in this moment. They're just dismayed and they're terrified. They're shattered. They're shell of men because they're just so afraid that they have no hope that it's gonna work out in their favor. And, and, and when we start thinking that way, and I'm talking about Christians, I'm talking about people who follow Jesus, I'm talking about people who've placed their hope and faith and trust in God. Uh, here we are, you know, just to put it in a modern context, 21st century America, uh, gearing up for another election cycle. God help us, Jesus. Uh, you know, as, as we get ready to go through another circus act of a political season, and, and as everybody, you know, who's paying attention, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, from this point over the next 18 months to 24 months, you will have the temptation to be dismayed and terrified dismayed and terrified. Then throw on top of that aliens in Las Vegas and, and throw on, I mean, it's like, yeah, we already knew there were aliens in Las Vegas. Tell us something new. But on top of the CIA whistleblower saying, we've got, we've got this in the hangar and we got, and it's like, are we alone? And it's like, there's enough to be dismayed and terrified about out there. So everybody can understand this. So Saul and the army, they're looking at the Philistines, they're looking at Goliath and they're dismayed and they're terrified because fear has overtaken their faith and all hope is lost and they've got confidence that things won't work out. And when you have confidence that things are not gonna work out, when you begin to have confidence that God is not gonna turn what's bad good and you start living like that's true, you and I will end up dismayed and terrified. Whenever we grow pessimistic, cynical, faithless, fearful, 
The only outcome of that is to be dismayed and terrified. Now Saul, I, I just imagine, I don't know, I try to put myself in his situation. He doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to fight, but his problem is he can't retreat. And when you don't want to fight and you can't retreat, well, that's, a, that's a tough situation to be in. And he's over there trying to think of anything he can come up with. And then on top of that, Goliath is just absolutely relentless. It says for 40 days, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and he took his stand. Now, why would he do that? Because this is psychological warfare. The enemy always wants to get in our mind. If the enemy can begin to shape our thinking, he's already got us exactly where he wants us. So what does the enemy do? Every morning, I'm gonna start the day making you think this. And then when you get to the end of the day and you're trying to get rest and you're trying to lay in peace, I'm gonna make you think about it again. And that's how the enemy works. That's how Goliath works every morning, every evening. He's out there, he's sowing the seeds of fear and dismay and terror in the life of Saul and the Israelites. Now, meanwhile, back on the farm in Bethlehem, David is taking care of his father's sheep. Now, David's oldest three brothers are there with Saul. They're part of the army. And Jesse, who's back at home where David's at, Jesse, he's very concerned about his sons and in what father wouldn't be because, you know, they're at war and there's a real chance that they may never come home and, and no parent wants to ever entertain the thought that their son or their daughter isn't gonna be able to come home from something. And so uh, Jesse wants to make sure that the brothers are okay and he wants to make sure that the older brothers have everything that they need. So he calls David in from the field. And he's gonna give David some supplies. And he's gonna make sure that David takes these supplies to his brothers and find, you know, kind of gets a, a wellness report on the brothers. Now, remember, David has been anointed by Samuel to be king. But again, just like we found David faithful last week when he was playing music in service to, to King Saul. Here is David, he's anointed to be the next king, but where is he at? He's taking care of his father's sheep. This is a guy who's, who's not, you know, gotten on his high horse. This is a guy who, who's not thinking that he's better than everybody else now. This is a guy who's just taking responsibility for what he's responsible for. And let me tell you, just, just where we are as a culture here in the West, life will get exponentially better for you and for me and for everybody else around us when we just simply start taking responsibility for what we are responsible for. Part of the great problem that we're all having to deal with is the irresponsibility of people. There's people who've had to deal with our irresponsibility at times and seasons in our life. But let me tell you where greatness begins. Let me tell you where taking a step in the direction of God's destiny begins. It just begins with, I'm gonna take responsibility for what I'm responsible for. If this is what I'm responsible for, I'm gonna take responsibility for. I'm not gonna shuck my responsibility. I'm not gonna discard my responsibility. I'm not gonna retreat from my responsibility, but I'm gonna take responsibility for what I'm responsible for. And that's what David's doing. That's what he's doing. He's taking care of his father's sheep and he's, he's anointed to be the next king. So David, you know, gets called in by his dad and Jesse looks at him and says, hey, I need you to stop what you're doing. I need you to take these supplies to your brother. 
Now, David's a teenager, and I only imagine, because he's, he's a human being, and, and uh, as of July 29th, here in just a few weeks, you know, I, I will be the father, and Allison will be the mother of, of a teenager, and, and that's a whole other level of sanctification in the life of a parent. But, but here's this teenage boy, he comes in, yeah, dad, what is it? What is it? I, I'm busy. What is it? I, I need you to take this to, to, your, to your brothers, and you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into the text. I assume he huffed. <sighs> Why would you assume that? I know a lot of teenagers. Maybe he huffed. Maybe he rolled his eyes. <sighs> Wouldn't you like to just see a teenager's eyes get stuck like that for just a moment and freak them out? And, and then it'd be like, you'll never do that again, will you? And, and then he's like, okay, fine, whatever. And, and then he goes. And so he goes to the place, you know, where Israel, Israel is and where the Philistines have gathered. And he goes right to the battle line. He goes right up to the action. And it says, as David was talking with them, with his brothers, with their friends, with the other soldiers, as he was there, Goliath the Philistine, the champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, what he does every single day. And David heard it. Now, this is the first time that David has heard what Saul and the other Israelites have heard now for over 40 days. For 40 mornings and 40 evenings, Saul and the army have heard this. This is the first time that David has heard this. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. So this, this is really bad. David's there, he's there to bring supplies. Goliath comes out while he's there and Israel, they're just dismayed, they're terrified and they're kind of backing up, they're kind of hiding. You know, they're just, they're just confident this is not gonna work out. And this is where we begin to see the difference between David and Saul and David and everybody else in Israel's army. This is where we're gonna see the difference between what it looks like to live in faith and confidence and trust in God and what it looks like to be paralyzed with fear. David's gonna show us what resilience looks like while Saul and the army, they're gonna show us what it looks like to be fragile and to be easily shaken and to be easily upset. He, he's gonna show us what courage looks like while Saul and the Israel army is gonna show us what complacency looks like. They saw Goliath and they're wanting to retreat. David's gonna remind us that faith changes how we hear things, how we see things, how we feel about things, and how we respond to things. That's the adult side of this. This is the deeper, more mature side of this. That David's faith and David's confidence in God it's gonna shape what he hears. It's gonna shape what he sees. It's gonna to begin to shape how he feels and ultimately how he responds because it's gonna be much different than Saul and Israel's army. Everybody feared, but yet there's David. So David, he's, he's taking all this in. It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now again, 
This is the first time that David's hearing from Goliath. He's hearing the same thing that Israel had been hearing for over 40 days, but David hears it differently. David hears the voice of Goliath differently. Saul and his army heard the voice of Goliath and they were shaken and dismayed and terrified and wanted to flee in fear. David heard the same thing, but he heard it differently. He heard a disgrace. He heard a problem to be solved. He saw the same thing that Saul and the army saw. Nine foot six, 400 plus pounds, 200 plus pounds of armor. He saw the same thing that everybody else saw, but he saw it differently. And because he heard it differently and saw it differently, he felt different about the moment. And he's gonna respond different. You say, well, why? Again, because of his faith, because of his belief and confidence that God is who God says that he is and that God's gonna do what God says that he will do. And so David, David's there and he's thinking, who is this uncircumcised joker? Who is this guy? Who is this jerk? What? What is going on here? And then David says, this guy's defying the armies of the living God. And, and here David has the audacity to actually bring God into the equation. Because it doesn't seem like anybody else has at this moment. It seems like Saul is probably trying to figure out how to deal with this within his own capacity, with his own ingenuity, his own intelligence, his own creativity. The, the nation of Israel, all the other guys in the army, they're trying to figure this out on their own and, and there's really nothing to figure out. And they're, they're approaching this battle with just themselves in mind. David shows up and within the first few moments, he's bringing God into the equation. Everybody else has got their eyes on Goliath. Everybody else has got their eyes on the Philistines. David shows up, sees Goliath, hears Goliath, and he turns his attention immediately to God. And so here's David, he's showing us about the perspective that we walk through life with. He's talking about a perspective that we face our, our opposition, our adversity, or the struggle, or the battle that we're constantly in. Uh, this is how David models for us how we are to face life every single day. So David's getting worked up. I mean, he's worked up. You can just tell in the text. I mean, his mind is racing. You know, his face is intense. His, his tone is serious. Uh, his eyes, you know, I imagine them to be just resolute. He's looking at these guys, you know, what is up with this? And, and everybody else is just like, oh my God, kid, you know, be quiet. And, and so he, he's asking about all of this. And, and as he is, uh, his brother speaks up. His brother speaks up and says, why have you come down here, brother? Why? Really? I know you brought those supplies from dad, but why are you here? And with whom did you leave those um, few sheep in the wilderness with? Just an insult, a way to embarrass his brother in front of everybody else. You're not been doing anything worthwhile. You're not doing anything meaningful. Here we are but you're back there taking care of those few little sheep. I know how conceited you are. Now think of this, and how wicked your heart is. And you only came down here to watch the battle. Now, again, this is how the story matures and it deepens and expands over time. Because when we're kids, 
we, we can't pick up on all the nuances of this. And, and we don't have the life experience to be able to hook our experiences to this particular theme at this point, you know, early in life. But, but at this point, a lot of us, we've lived long enough to know that this happens all the time. Some of you can relate to this because David, David is a go-getter. David is a go-getter. He, he takes the bull by the horn. He, he likes to take initiative. David is somebody who better just stirs in his heart. He's not content with mediocrity. He wants to be better. He, he's got a sense of inspiration. He, he lives life inspired. He's motivated. He's, he's gifted. He's got all of these expressions of his giftedness. And he won't settle. He has refused to settle for what other people have been willing to settle for. That, that's David. He refuses to settle for what a lot of people in his family have been willing to settle for. And so here's David asking some really important questions. David, who is giving birth to some really big ideas, and he's getting a big vision in his heart about what needs to be done in this situation. And the very people, his family, who should have been celebrating him are the ones who are criticizing him. David's family, maybe like some of your families, David's family wanted to keep David like them. They, they wanted to keep David on their level and they weren't comfortable with David pursuing something bigger, better, and greater because that meant that David would leave them behind. And some of you, you've lived your life feeling like the very people who should have celebrated you, the very people who should have cheered for you, the very people who should have been encouraging you were the very ones criticizing you most. The very people who were trying to suppress you, hold you back, make you feel guilty for wanting to be a success, making you feel guilty for wanting to do it better, to want, for wanting to do it different, for refusing to settle maybe for what your parents settled for or your brother and sister were willing to settle for. And because you weren't willing to settle for it, they align themselves against you, not with you. You know, in the mountains, we'll say it this way. Yeah, they've gotten above their raisin. You, you know what that's another way of saying? You've grown beyond us. You've progressed beyond us, and we don't like it. You think you're better than we are, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? And then what we do, and oftentimes, that's exactly what's happening in this story. This, this is David's brother trying to hold David back. And Eliab assumed that, hey, he needs to be like us. But here's what I love about David in this moment. David knew, and this is worth writing down, not every battle's worth fighting. Not every battle's worth fighting. David decided in this moment that he wasn't going to waste his time defending himself to his brother. He wasn't going to waste his time, as I think Jesus would teach later, casting his pearls before this particular swine. He wasn't going to waste his time doing it. David was not going to waste his time fighting a battle, defending himself to someone who really didn't even care about him. He wasn't going to get caught up in a skirmish or a side battle that was going to get him distracted from really what the issue at hand was. 
And that's what the enemy loves to do. If he can get you in, a, in another battle, in another skirmish, if he can get you distracted with something over here, you try to defend yourself, you try to, try to you know, do all the things and, and make yourself, you know, hopefully they'll see you in a better light and you're trying to convince them, no, I'm good, I'm really good. No, I'm not like that, I'm like that. You get distracted from the most important thing at hand and that's kind of what David decides not to do. Uh, so he asked the guys, he said, okay, tell me what's gonna happen for the person who defeats Goliath. And they were like, well, okay, you're gonna get to marry Saul's daughter. And if you know anything about the future of the story, that's not a prize at all. Uh, but, you know, but in that moment, it's like you get to marry Saul's daughter if, if you defeat Goliath. And, and so it's becoming more and more clear that David feels like, okay, somebody's gotta do something. Saul, you? No. Uh, anybody else? No. Okay. David figures, well, since nobody else is doing anything, then I must do something. Sometimes we're tempted to say, okay, if nobody else is going to do anything about it, well, neither am I. That's not David. David, he says, okay, nobody else is going to do this. So obviously that means I must need to do something. So it goes on and says, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him and David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant would go out and fight him. You guys don't need to be terrified and dismayed. But the reason you're terrified and dismayed and the reason you've lost heart is because you're confident this is not gonna work out. You're convinced this is not gonna work out. And whenever we convince ourselves that it's not gonna work out, whenever we convince ourselves that God is in the end not gonna bring good out of the bad, we're gonna lose heart. We're gonna lose heart. And when we lose heart, that's when we're tempted to quit. And when we lose heart, that's when we're tempted to sit down and do nothing. And when we lose heart, that's when we're tempted to walk away. We say, this is gonna be too hard. This is gonna be too difficult. This is probably not gonna work. And so you lose heart. David said, there's no need for anybody to lose heart. I'll go fight him. Because David thought, hey, I can do something about this. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior since his youth. So again, David's underestimated. He's outmanned, he's underexperienced. And, and then David says, well, let me tell you a couple stories about my past, Saul, that you probably don't know. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And Saul's like, what? Yeah, I've killed a lion and a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of those bears and one of those lions because he has defied the armies of the living God. And I'm gonna tell you, Saul, that the Lord, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul, there was some times I was taking care of my father's sheep and one day a lion grabbed one of those lambs and instead of just letting that lamb, you know, go and chalking it up as a loss, I went after it and I fought the lion and the lion didn't win. And on another occasion, the same thing happened with the bear. And I went after the bear and I fought the bear and the bear didn't win. But Saul, don't misunderstand me. Really wasn't me. The Lord was the one who delivered me, who rescued me. And so David, David had this really inter inter interesting way of thinking. He thought about God's faithfulness in the past. And when he thought about God's faithfulness in the past, when it came to that bear and when it came to that lion, it strengthened his faith in the present. And in the present moment, he's looking at a giant. And so instead of looking at the giant, he looks at the giant, but then he takes a look back and he thinks about all those bears and all those lions that God has delivered into his hand. And all of a sudden now, he's got more faith to face the giant that's in front of him right now. 
And so a lot of us, we go through life and what happens with us is, you know, we remember what we ought to forget and we forget what we ought to remember and we forget about all the answered prayers and we forget about all the times we thought that we weren't gonna make it through it. And we forget about all the times that we were backed against into the corner and we thought there was no way that we were ever gonna get out of the corner. And then we, we look back and we're like, you know what? I was convinced it wasn't gonna work out. I was convinced that there was nothing that was good that could come out of that. But now I look back and I see where the Lord delivered me, the Lord rescued me. And if we'll think in those terms like David, just maybe our faith in the present moment will be strong enough to what the moment requires when we're facing a giant of our own. So he takes these, these victories from his past and he begins, to, he begins to envision, what if I take down this giant? What if I just kill this giant? I can kill this giant. The Lord's done this before, he'll do it again. And here was David's faith. This was kind of how he, he rolled. God hasn't failed me yet and he won't fail me now. God hasn't failed me yet, and he won't fail me now. Matter of fact, just here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Bell County, let's all just say that out loud. Ready, let's go. God hasn't failed me yet, and he won't fail me now. That's faith, that's confidence, that's trust. So David, he, he goes out and he, he just, he addresses the, the giant. Nobody at this point, we have no record of anybody talking back. Nobody sassing Goliath. He says, this day, David said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. It's like, Whoa. this guy, I bet all the people are thinking, he, he's short on brains, but he's not short on guts. I mean, what is he doing? And David says, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. God's gonna prove himself strong today. And all those gathered here, whether it's Saul or the army, all those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And so what does David do? He goes out and he runs towards Goliath because David leveraged his strength which was his quickness, his speed, his agility. He's not weighted down by armor. Matter of fact, Saul offered him his, but it was too big. He's like, I can't do that. So David goes out and he runs towards Goliath and he takes out his stone, he takes out his sling and he whips that sucker and like a 45 cal, poof, right in the center of Goliath's forehead. Goliath never saw it coming and Goliath hits the ground. And then David takes his sword and cuts his head off. What a great story. <laughs> I mean, that's just what dreams are made of right there. So how could David do that? He never thought it was his fight. He saw it as God's fight. He saw it as the Lord's battle. And here's what David it seems to me this is what David's faith in God led him to believe, that God takes ultimate responsibility for the final outcomes in our life. That God takes ultimate responsibility for all the final outcomes in my life and your life, and that's good news. 
That means that everything that God has promised to do, I can place my confidence that he will do it. When God says that no weapon will ultimately prosper against you, I know that no weapon formed against me will ultimately prosper. When God says that everything that is bad will become good, and when God promises that in the end, you'll not stand in defeat, you'll stand in victory, and I live my life in alignment with that, and I realize that God takes ultimate responsibility for that final outcomes in my life, that means I don't, try to, I don't have to try to manipulate outcomes, I don't have to try to control outcomes, all I gotta do is like David, live every day placing my faith and my confidence and my hope in God. And it says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. Years later, David would write many, 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 many songs, poems, melodies, and there's one particular that I think maybe that when he wrote the words, maybe he was thinking about this event with Goliath as the backdrop for what David wrote in Psalm 25. And in Psalm 25, David wrote these words, and it seems to me that this gives us a glimpse behind the curtain to what attracted God to David's heart this man after God's own heart, David wrote in Psalm 25, in you, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust and no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. God, in you, I've decided to place my trust and place my hope. And knowing that if I place my hope and trust in you, I will never be put to shame. I will never be defeated. I will never be made a public embarrassment. I'm never gonna be put to shame because in you, oh God, do I put my trust and no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. Let's all just read that out loud together. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. One more time, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. So when you're facing the battle, when you're facing the struggle, when you're facing the giant, just go ahead and say it to yourself. Say it out loud. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. And no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And when we begin to do that, we'll realize that no matter how big the enemy may be or how great the enemy may be, God is bigger and God is greater. So whatever the battle is, David said, don't forget, the battle belongs to the Lord. And whatever the enemy, whatever the battle, whatever the struggle, no matter how big it is, no matter how great it may seem, God is bigger and God is greater. God is bigger and God is greater. And sometimes you just have to remind yourself of that. God, this is a giant. I really don't see a way through this, but in you, oh God, do I put my trust and no one who hopes in you will be put to shame. You're bigger, you're greater. 
And when we begin to live like that, here, this is it. Don't miss this. We'll begin to understand. Battles are unavoidable. Giants, unavoidable. But victory is inevitable because the battle's not ours. The battle is the Lord's. And He is undefeated every single time. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage us. Whatever themes of this story connect with where we may be in life and what we've experienced in life, I pray that for all of us, that we, along with David, would be able to say today, in you, Lord my God, do I place my trust because no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. That whatever we face, no matter how big it is and no matter how great it seems, you are bigger and you are greater. So Father, help us rest in that. Help us to be confident that the battle belongs to you. And because the battle belongs to you, victory is inevitable. You will make good of every single promise. You will bring good out of every single bad thing. And God, ultimately, when we stand, we will not stand in the shame of defeat, but we will stand in the confidence of a victory that you have delivered into our hands. So God, give us this type of faith, this type of confidence, this type of trust. I pray in Jesus' name.